Dark Worlds Quarterly presents The Sword and Sorcery Roundtable. Heroic fantasy authors and publishers join moderator G.W. Thomas to examine the state of the sword and sorcery genre. In this episode, the topic is Sword and Sorcery, Comic Books and Video Games. Welcome to our second Dark Worlds Quarterly Sword and Sorcery Roundtable. Participants in this roundtable include William Meikle. Hi, William Meikle. I'm a Scotsman living in Canada. I've been writing fantasy and horror for 30-odd years now with numerous books published. My fantasy tends to be of the sword and sorcery kind with uh, people with swords hacking away at monsters. It's just the way I roll. And uh, I'm here to talk about things probably more from a British perspective than we get from some of the other rest of you. John O'Neill. For, for me, uh, if, I, if I have any sort of claim to fame in, you know, in the Sword and Sorcery Quadrant, it's really all because I, I edited a magazine, Blackgate magazine, for a long, very long time, for about 10 years. Uh, we published a lot of, a lot of folks, uh, James Zhang, Howard Andrew Jones, uh, Harry Connolly, Corey Doctorow. Uh, our very first issue had a big novella in it by a, a brand new one from Michael Moorcock. So we did a lot of, uh, you know, uh, very proud of, of, of publishing that for many years. I'm a writer of my own right. Uh, my first novel was uh, uh, came out from Hufflin Mifflin uh, two years ago. The Robots of Gotham did very, very well. And C.L. Werner. My name is Quintley Werner. I wrote most of my material under the byline of C.L. Werner. At this point, I've done over 30 novels for ordered uh, IPs, such as Warhammer, Warhammer 40,000. Recently, I added Marvel to the list with a novel based on the Marvel Z. The Legends of Asgard. Big feather in my cap was last year I did Solomon Kane, the short story of the Get a Garm, which showed up in Marvel Comics. A few of the other IPs I've written for have been the Iron Kingdoms, uh, Kings of War, uh, Wild West Exodus. A little bit of familiarity with writing for different IPs. What is a comic book that was very important to you? Maybe there are none, but I assume there are some. That in your past that really helped you become a sword and sorcery fan and, and ultimately a writer. Let's start with Clint. I would have to say, I've said this several times, uh, Marvel back in the 70s did a line called Supernatural Thrillers. And one of the early issues in there was an adaptation of Robert E. Howard's Valley of the Worm. Yes, so yes. That was... My introduction to Robert E. Howard, basically my introduction to uh, Sword and Sorcery, and uh, is always always just stuck with me that ad- adaptation. So beyond like a vague awareness of who Conan was, that was my first proper introduction to the genre. Plus, I mean, the art, everything in there is just stellar, absolutely stellar. Uh, for me, it's uh, from a British perspective, we didn't get that many of the American comic books when I was a lad. Uh, we had the occasional uh, DC early Bat- uh, Batman's early 60s ones when I started. And then Marvel started coming along, but we never got runs of stories. So I was always reading bits and pieces of different stories. We never got really involved because we couldn't get a full run of anything. I didn't really get into comics until 2008 came along. So uh, my my uh, introduction to the comic world was Judge Dredd and Slain, mainly. So Slain would be my introduction to the Sword and Sorcery in comics. Well, I've been a fan. I've been a fan for a long time through books. Long before that, I'm much more with Clint on this. I I, uh, I go way back into the '70s. Um, before I before I dive into that, I do want to say a few words about. Uh, I'm just as much into comics these days as I was as a kid. I, you know, I don't have as much time like everybody else to, to read them. But there is some great stuff. I mean, there's a Head Lopper is one I highly recommend. It's it's a you know sort of a balls out sword and sorcery tale. Um, it's had two uh, two collections. I should have should have grabbed one to, to to show it. But the one I did grab to talk about, of course, um, is is sort of the granddaddy of, of science, you know, of, of Sword and Sorcery comics, which is Marvels. And if you haven't seen these, these are these are the Marvel Epic collections. These are you know sort of full color reproductions, uh, issue by issue. So this is, I think, the first twenty issues of, of Marvel's Conan by uh, by with Barry Windsor, the original Barry Windsor Smith art. Um, you know, this may be, you know, this may be heresy, but when I was, you know, when I was running Black Gate and buying stories, you know, I, I was frequently chatting with a lot of uh, people who were sending me Sword and Sorcerer, Sword and Sorcery, and they, they kept telling me, yeah, I, I'm a fan of, of Robert E. Howard. And when I would ask, they'd say, oh, yeah, I, I read all his comics. 
And (laughs) I found that if I were to divide up, at least people who were contributing to my magazine, between, between people who came to Robert E. Howard through comics, as opposed to the paperbacks, I think the most of them would come from the comics. It seemed to me, and, and again, this is not a, this is by no means a scientific poll, but uh, Marvel brought an enormous sort of resurgence into you know into Howard and, and you know and Howard adjacent sort of fiction uh, all through the comics, and of course um, you know the other the other big one we'll get to later was of course with Guy Dennis, uh, who which is how literally how, how I came to love sword and sorcery was through uh, through Dungeons and Dragons. This isn't really about me, but I wanted to just throw in um, Colin Bunn's Helheim is uh, a new Oh, yes. Yes. And its sequel, Brides of Helheim. Of course, we all have our favorites. Um, you're talking about the 70s there with, with Marvel. There was a, a sweet spot that's right around 1973. That's when that supernatural thrillers came out that Clint mentioned. And so you had uh, Marvel doing all kinds of stuff. Uh, Roy Thomas, of course, adapting most of it at the same time that you could still get the answer paperbacks or later the ace paperbacks. You don't, you don't know when you have it good, right? I <laughs> uh, don't know you're in the golden age when you're in it. Yeah. In 73 in Britain, it was, uh, it was Moorcock time. It was eternal champion time. Uh, and he was dominating British sword and sorcery at that point. And we were all waiting for this, the next Moorcock paperback. It was, it was a big thing at that time. Yeah. Um, in the in the uh, 80s and the early 90s, uh, P.K. P. Craig Russell did a lot of Moorcock adaptations. He adapted Elric and Corum. And yeah, am I the only one on, on this call who's familiar with those? Because they were beautiful. Yeah, I've got some of them. So they were uh, originally put out, I think, by First Comics. Um, it started off independent. They are still in print. Um, you know, if you're familiar with the the artist, you know, P.K. P. Craig Russell, he is by no means what you'd consider, you know, a sword and sorcery artist. He's... Uh, uh, he's, his, his style is very Art Deco. You know, yeah. he's, you, you'd expect to see him in, in uh, illustration magazines, you know, uh, 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 decorating the wall of a bank. He yeah. brought, <laughs> brought sort of operatic feel. And, and this is it. But he loved the genre and he started adapting Elric stories. And I originally, when I first stumbled on him, I thought this is this is a, a horrible marriage. It doesn't work. But it absolutely did. He brought the, this, this sense of opera and the sense of all this color um, and he and he also compressed these these enormous stories into, into comic length adventures, which I think was also, you know, also a, a big undertaking. I should not admit this. I had never read an Elric story before I read them in the comics uh, in the mm-hmm. 80s as a late teen. Um, and that was, again, was my introduction. I had the I had some of those posters you were talking, some of those comic pages really? on my bedroom oh, wall yeah. with a student. Yeah. <laughs> Clint, does that... Uh, Tell me a little bit more about your. So you talked about those that supernatural horror stuff, right? The the seventies and uh, Valley of the Worm. That was like one issue, right? That was one issue, and they yeah. later adapted it for. Um, I want to yeah. say it showed up in Colin the Barbarians, which was one of their big uh, black and white magazines here, because uh, the black and white magazines wouldn't fall under the Comic Code's authority, so they could yes. do things in yes. there that they couldn't do in the four color comics. <laughs> yep. Including of all the strange things, using the word zombie. <laughs> we didn't know that. Right, forbidden from comic books at the era. Really, I had no idea. Yeah, it was a holdover from the whole um, the comics code thing from the fifties. So, uh, in the four color comics, Marvel had to refer to them as zombie oh because you could not use the actual word zombie in a comic book at, at the time. I don't know why that one, you know, the Valley Worm lingers so long in my mind. Um, you know, for, I was startled when I back back and found it was only a single issue. But yeah, that one, that one certainly remembered. There was a, a DC one, and I'm trying really hard to remember. It's a four issue series. It didn't last very long, but it was a sword, a great sword and sorcery classic. It wasn't Claw the Conqueror, was it? It might have been. It might. It might have been. It, it was certainly that's. Uh, um, it was about 1974, so I was I was like 10 years old, but it lingered in my mind. What was it about? Uh, it, it had a much more. It wasn't. It wasn't self-contained story. It had much more of a story arc. At least in my in my ten-year-old mind, it it, uh, it it told a much more ambitious and, and much more compelling story. But again, I think it only lasted like four issues. D and D also. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, DC also had a uh, like a Adventures of, of in Sword and Sorcery. I mean, a, literally a comic co- titled Sword and Sorcery, if I remember correctly. Yeah, which if I remember right is where Fod and the Grim Mauser got together. Yes, that's absolutely. You're absolutely right. That's right. Yeah. That was sort of sorcery. Sword of Sorcery. Yeah. Gary, man, you're the expert here. Tell us what you remember about that one. 
Well, uh, actually, I was just trying to figure out what that four issue one might have been. There was one that DC put out called Stalker, which was uh, Wally Wood and uh, Steve Ditko. Oh my God! Doing the artwork. I mean, um, they had Beowulf, Dragon Slayer, but that went six. Yeah, they, not a lot of their titles only ran, you know, less than twelve. Well, Sword of Sorcery was an amazing comic because you had the first really awesome Howard Jakin art. You had Bernie Wrightson learning how to ink some of it. Jeez, how many uh, issues had, did it run? Well, five. It ran five issues according to this. Five. You had Mike yeah. Paluda doing covers. I thought it was four. And, yeah, and you had Walt Simonson in there as well. He did a his own Fafford story about a the called the prophecy, which wow. is one of my favorites. Yeah. So yeah, even though it only went five, it was it was quite amazing. The other weird thing about it is they introduced that comic in Wonder Woman. They had a two what? part two parter in Wonder Woman. I think it was two hundred and one and two hundred and two, written by um, Samuel R. Delaney. Oh my God! Are you he wrote serious? it. Yeah, two parter, and it it's not the best story, but. Basically, um, Wonder Woman and her crew gang are team up with Favreau and Grey Mouser and cross a dimensional gateway and yeah, you know, the huge. <laughs> but that was their way of introducing the new comics. So, you know, though, the uh, the comic that I didn't discover, the '70s comic that I wish I had, was Red Sonia. And this thing was completely gonzo. It was written by a guy who wrote Howard the Duck. Herbert. Uh, although he didn't, he didn't start. I think, it might, I think it was started by Ray Thomas, but eventually, you know, he took over. And this thing, this thing was absolutely nuts. <laughs> it was about it, you know, uh, she traveled in time, you know, she faced off, she faced cars, she faced uh, absent-minded uh, uh, wizards. You know, she... It was an enormous sort of feast of the imagination. And, and in retrospect, the comic made no sense. It, it really felt like something that was written an hour and a half before deadline. <laughs> Every single issue. But again, uh, it, it's something that, I've, that I enjoyed as an adult simply because it's so different. And it, it was clear that, it lo- that the comic, it looked like the creative team thought they were going to get canceled every single issue. <laughs> and uh, they just kept taking it further and further. Does anybody else know what I'm talking about? Anybody else a fan of the, of the uh, Marvel Red Sonja comic? Well, I had uh, brief, brief encounters with uh, the Red Sonja comics from that time period. So unfortunately, I can't inform too much on that. I have an author who, who used to write for me. His name was Mike Pankus. And he came to me and said, John, you know, I, I have a series in idea in mind for your Black Goat website. You know, and Mike done some good stuff for me. And he says, I want to review every issue of the Red Sonja comic book. And I, I'm like, okay. So yeah, send me, send me an article and just, you know, itemize a model. And he said, no, you don't understand. I, I don't want to do one article. I want to do a series of articles, every issue reviewed in detail. I'm like, Mike, you're talking about a 40-year-old comic book that no one's going to remember. I, you know, <laughs> I've, got, I've got half a million readers that come to my website. Every Why on earth would they take time off their lunch hour to read 1,500 words on issue 26 of Red Sonja? He says, let me try it. Let's, let me do it. And I, and, and I get it now. He, he had so much to say about every issue. <laughs> he went in deep. On, you know, and, and he was right. The audience followed him along, and he got a ton of fan mail. Uh, he had thousands of people who would show up every, you know, every Tuesday morning at 8 a.m. to read what, what, what was going to happen in Red Sonja 40, you know, 41, uh, literally a comic that was, that had never gone up in value. It wasn't, it wasn't highly collectible really. And I got hooked, I got hooked on it as well. Right. I'm mean, <laughs> this can't really be happening. You know, she can't be going up against talking alligators, you know, it's just, but it was, uh, uh, it was gonzo. It was fun. It, it did remind me of, of Howard, you know, sort of the Howard the Duck total irreverence, uh, reminding you that, that it's not all about grim comics. You know that you can you can do things you can do things in the comics medium that you could not sell anywhere else. It just would not work in a movie. It would not work on the page. And you can have an enjoyable form of entertainment. So I, I think that's that's what we can do with, as sword and sorcery fans today, right? We can highlight the kind of work that was being done and completely flying under the radar. Red Sonja was absolutely canceled. You know, uh, uh, too early into its run. Um, you know, but but there was uh, there was uh, a lot of art, and I, and I don't just I don't just mean the, on the on the page itself. I mean, you know, in the creation of that comic book and, and what went into it is still worked is still worth talking about forty years later. I wanted to ask uh, Willie if he read any of the other British weeklies. Uh, I know Michael Moorcock actually wrote for some of those back in the sixties, I think, or maybe he lo- yeah, I was a bit too young back then. I, 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 I was born in fifty eight. 
was a bit too young. I didn't didn't get to Moorcock until seventy one when I was about thirteen, so I probably missed out on them. And as I say I didn't buy. I wasn't into comics until two thousand AD, so I missed out on all the all the earlier stuff. Did you read Alan Moore stuff? Yes, I did. Yeah, and that and Constantine are uh, big favourites of. Constantine's been a big, a big, big influence on me. He's not sword and sorcery, but the the cult detective side of it uh, has been a big influence. He is adjacent enough to sword and sorcery that I that I uh, yeah you know, I, I include him. Uh, I've I've got a, a series character who's a, a, a Scottish swordsman in the 16th century, but he's basically based on Constantine, even though he's 400 years back. <laughs> Which one is that? Is it's a guy called Augustus Seaton. I've I've got 12 short stories all collected. They're all. The, I did have a publisher, but they they collapsed, so they're all self-published on Amazon now. So there's oh. four little chapbooks with twelve, three three stories in each. Uh, there's a, there's a collected paperback of all twelve of them. But I haven't actually sent myself a copy of it yet. <laughs> so he was my attempt. He's, he's like a mixture of Constantine and Solomon Kane. This guy, his adventures will probably keep me going until well past my retirement. <laughs> Clint, I want to ask you about your your stories that are appearing in Tales from the Magician's Skull. Is that going to be a series? Uh, yes, uh, actually. Um... The Oba stories, I've had a few of them uh, published through Rogue Boys Enterprises. So uh, they've showed up in anthologies like Rage of the Behemoth and uh, Demons and a few of the other uh, books that Jason's put out. Yeah, Jason was Jason was on this uh, like two weeks ago, right? Was yeah. it, that was almost a month ago. Jason no Waltz. Yeah, Jason Waltz, the guy, publisher of Rogue Blades, who publishes uh, Clint's, a lot of Clint stories. In fact, I think... That was probably the first place I ever read uh, your fiction was in uh, Return of the Was it Return of the Sword or Rage of the Behemoth? Must have been Rage, Rage, of, the Rage of the Behemoth. I missed yeah. out on Return of the Sword, but uh, yeah, I've got uh, quite a few. I'm trying to get a collection together for that uh, character. So I know Jason's got some more anthologies coming up. Are you going to be in them as well? Uh, I've got a story in one of them, which I'm not sure when that that particular anthology is going to be coming out. Because I've been enjoying these, the ones in Tales of the Magician Skull. So you're going to be continuing. Are, are, are they going to be in here? Hopefully, if Howard enjoys them. <laughs> yeah, I think he think he does. So the Howard we're talking about, of course, is, is Howard Andrew Jones, who edits um, Tales from the Magician Skull, which is probably right now the leading sword and sorcery magazine out there. I mean, there are there are five issues. It comes out, uh, you know, it's coming up on a quarterly. It's coming up. It comes out about twice a year now. And this is a lot of new fantasy. I mean, this is uh, James Ang is in here. Uh, Chris Hawking, Clint, of course, uh, uh, Chris Willock, uh, many, many, many others. I mean, well, this big is uh, coup is Nathan Wong's going to be writing new part in the uh, Gray Mauser story. Absolutely. Yeah. T- tell us about that. Thomas. Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a big announcement. Just came out. Basically, all I know is that uh, Nathan Long, who uh, a lot of the listeners might know from uh, doing the Gotrick and Felix uh, novels, he's done uh, Jane Carver of War. A lot of video game work, scripts for Wasteland, Bard's Tale 4. But uh, yeah, he's going to be doing new short stories with Bard and the Grey Mauser. And they're all going to be appearing in uh, Tales from the Magician Skull. I heard a rumor there was going to be a, a Fire and Ice anthology coming up from the, the Bakshi really? movie. Yeah, but I haven't heard anything more about it. I got contacted but somebody I don't want to mention just now, but uh, asking if I might be interested in writing a story for it. And I said, yes, but I haven't heard anything more about it since then. This is, uh, this is the, old Bashke, the old Ralph Bashke movie? Yeah. Uh-huh. Was, about, somebody's, got, somebody's found the rights to it and uh, they're thinking of bringing out an anthology of linked stories. But, uh, I haven't heard anything more about it since then. That was about six months ago. I got contacted. I'd, I'd, read, I'd read that. Yeah, me too. Oh, I would too. I'd write for it as well. Especially if they could dig up an old Frazetta that we haven't seen and put that on the cover. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Good, luck. Good luck with that. I mean, oh, didn't, yeah. didn't that original Frazetta sell, sell for over, what was it, $2 million two weeks ago? Something like that, yeah. You know, but maybe some old production work that he did with for Ralph there could be used, you know, something we haven't all seen to death because we've yeah. seen all yeah. the Frazettas a yeah. lot, right? Of course. You know what? There's still some, you know, Howard found a, an old San Julian, you know? This is a San Julian cover, one of the, one of the well, I consider one of the great sword and sorcery artists, and he put yes. that on there. But you know, we don't always have to go back. This is uh, this is the cover to issue one. You know, and I love this. I love this cover. I think it's the best cover they've done. And this is by a, this is by a new artist. You know, this guy uh, Jim Pavel, Pavlik is a local Chicago guy. He did some he did some art for me in uh, in, in Black Gate. Uh, you know, there's there's plenty of new artists out there who I think you know we should be uh, we should be paying attention to as well. 
I consider Jason Waltz and Rogue Blades Publishing to be one of the leading sword and sorcery publishers out there right now. I mean, his his anthologies are terrific. They really are. Mm-hmm. Um, he And he's got a very ambitious schedule. He's put out quite a few more. He's got a Princess Bride one, I think, coming next. Yep. He's got that book on Robert E. Howard that's coming out. I think the, I think it's coming out this year. Um, yeah, he he's... Uh, uh, you know, he had he had a, a long sort of a fallow period, but he's right back into it, and he's got a lot of energy. Well, yeah, I want to ask you again about your uh, not to get too off topic. So you you did a couple stories, at least one for a cult detective, Corley Relay. Is that yeah. you did more more of those? Uh, yeah, we we started the Dave Wilbanks and I were in the first issue uh, with a uh, gorilla detective story, a very pulpy one, and uh, I always wanted to make more of them. Dave's not been Dave's lost his mojo, so. Uh, we haven't done any for a while, but we've got another one in the go at the moment with the same gorilla detective, and that's very sort of 1950s pulpy stuff. Wow. Uh, I've had stories in a called Detective Quarterlies. They, they brought out an anthology of novellas, yeah. and I've got a novella in that Long one. Stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got one in that, and that, that's an ongoing series of mine that's part of. It's a, it's a Scottish PI who gets involved in occult cases. Uh, I've been writing for him since I started writing since the early 90s, and he's still going, still writing more stories of his. So, uh, yeah, there'll, there'll be more stuff in the cult detective to come. I know the the editors pretty well. Uh, I had a bit of a step back because uh, the original publisher died, uh, and the two two of the guys who used to be the editors, they took over the publications of it. So it's yeah, all... John, uh, John Grant, right? John Linwood Grant? Yeah, John's one of the John's the main editor now, and uh, his pal Dave Brzezewski, uh They're both friends of mine from the British Small Press. I've known them for a while. Uh, Cliff Barrows was the original publisher for the Brit. He, uh, but he died. He had a heart attack two years ago now, and that slowed everything down in the magazine. But there'll be more to come. It's such a lovely magazine, you know. The, yeah, the they've got good production art, values. You know, the interior art as well. They they have a great sense of it. And the, they brought this is one of my favorites. I mean, I, I read a lot of and collect a lot of the modern magazines, and this these guys have done a good job. Yeah, the, John's got a good a good eye for artwork. Yeah, uh, he, he picks good stuff. Well, tell me a little bit about, but you're doing some Car- uh, Carnegie stories. You've done a lot of like like how many now? Fifty of them now. Oh wow! Four, four collections now. Collection number four is just about to come out from Dark Regions Press. Uh, I've been writing them for about. I started more than 10 years ago. Uh, somebody, I was, I had a publisher at the time, he said, have you ever thought about writing a Karnaki story? And I said, well, I didn't even know he's public domain. He said, well, he's public domain and the stories are available. Do you want to try one? So I tried one and uh, the general public liked it. And I tried the second one. And by the time I got to about seven or eight stories, Chris Morey at Dark Rages Press said, do you want to do an anthology of these? Wow. Uh, a collection. And I said, uh, yes, sure. And they got, uh, I don't know if you guys know Wayne Miller, the artist. He does a lot of small press work, especially for dark regions. But he did a, a full set of color, uh, black and white illustrations for the interior, and I got a, a limited edition uh, leather-bound hardback out of it from dark regions. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. It was really nice. And the second collection had got the same from dark regions. And then the third collection came out from Lovecraft Easing. Have you come across them? They, nah, they do. Yeah. Uh, and the fourth collection is back with dark regions press again, and that's coming out next week. Now, do these stories originally appear? Because I've seen I've seen the collections, but I, I just assumed yeah. that they they'd been appearing in the small press, and I'd been completely missing them. Is that true? Or Maybe, are you some, right? of them, some of them appeared in the small presses. Yeah, I've had a few in anthologies, quite a, quite a few different anthologies uh, from again that region's press, and uh, actually the other main one is published the Karnaki ones. There's several that region's press anthologies. I've, I've been working with them for yeah you know, ten years now. Okay. Uh, I can't think of anywhere else has appeared. I've, I've sold quite a few in Japan. I've sold, uh, there's a, a Japanese pro magazine called Nightland Quarterly. Uh, they pay really nice rates and they love my Karnaki story. I think I've sold seven of the stories to them for pro rates. So I can say wow. I'm, big in, I'm big in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> that must be nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm beginning to sell, sell books in Germany now as well. I've got another series, uh, another pulp series about Scottish squaddies fighting monsters in present yes. day, a bit like the bit like the Dog Soldiers team fighting monsters, and that's doing really well for me. That's, that's given me that's nearly two thousand income for the past couple of years. Wow! They've, they've now been picked up in Germany, and they're selling like hotcakes in Germany in the German editions. 
So that's keeping me going and into my retirement. My that's my retirement fund. They're, they're keeping me in money at the moment. What a fabulous was, retirement fund! So, I didn't even know this was an option as a retirement fund. I'm loving this. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've been I've been full time for twelve years now. Uh, but as I said, the, the, the Scottish squaddish things I'm writing, they're, they're keeping me away from sword and sorcery at the moment. And I'd like to get back to sword and sorcery. Like Clint was mentioning, the, the Vikings against Yeti book. I've got a couple of ideas with those same characters going for taking them further, and I'd like to get onto them at some point. And I've got an idea for a big fantasy trilogy in my head that I want to write as well. So, yeah, I can feel old age creeping up on me. I'm 62 now, and I can feel the, the years slipping by and all these ideas still to write, and I want to get around to them sometime. Tell me a little bit more about that fantasy trilogy. Would you consider that sword and sorcery? Is it more on the heroic fantasy fashion? Uh, sword and sorcery, yeah, it is really. Uh, the, and I've also got I've got the a series in set in Scotland in the seventeen forties, which are sword and sorcery as well. But that's a the conceit of that is that Bonnie Prince Charlie and his whole army are vampires. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're heading south trying to claim the English throne and vampirize everybody and so there's, there's a Hadrian's Wall has all been uh, reinforced and the people are on there protecting England from the vampire army heading south and that's a trilogy as well and what, what I did there was me- mess with history and it's an alternative history version of the Jacobite Rebellion with Bonnie Prince Charlie as a vampire and all these armies and wow. that, went down, that that was one of the first things I wrote. I wrote that 25 years ago now, but that's still in print and that still sells and people still write to me about it. So like Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter type thing, if, you, if you've seen that. Criminally <laughs> underrated movie. Yeah, I love it. I've always loved that one. I saw that one in the cinema when I was a, young, when I was a lad. Is that, uh, is that the Hammer film? Yes. Yeah, that was one of Hammer's 70s films. The Hammer film, yeah, yeah. Yeah. When when Scott Oden was on last time, he basically said, they, in his philosophy anyway, sword and sorcery is basically just historical fiction. And, yeah, uh, with that muscles. series certainly would <laughs> seem to <be laughs> that direction. You can argue that either way, but uh, yeah, <laughs> that was his, we should probably move on to uh, some role playing games and such now. First, first show of hands. How many people were Dungeons and Dragons players? And there you oh yeah. I was a dungeon master starting in nineteen seventy-nine. So nice. very, very nice. long, yeah. I mean, that was uh, a couple of years later. For, I played for about ten years up to about eighty-nine when I stopped. The the, the group of us all sort of disbanded and we all went to, went our separate ways and I, I stopped playing then. But I had ten years solo as a dungeon master back in the late seventies, early eighties. Now did you play uh, like I, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, the, the original yeah, the, the original the original rules basically, yeah. Uh, although I, the group I was in were all of, of, uh, heavy drinkers and uh, very silly. You know, it all became a bit Monty Python and the Holy Grail most nights. <laughs> I probably started when uh, Willie stopped in 1989, thereabouts. He was in high school. It was my first uh, experience with the actual AD&D game. Uh, prior to that, I'd had limited exposure uh, the old uh, comic book was probably the first awareness I had of Dungeons and Dragons. Sorry, not comic book, coloring book. Great big, huge. I might even have it knocking around here still. So what? Now, so you played? Uh, were you a dungeon master or your player? A little bit of both. Yeah. Would you like both. more? Probably dungeon mastering. The other guy that would dungeon master would lose interest, and then all of a sudden the story would like completely change from where it was going. The one you're working towards killing, well, he's dead now, and you got this other thing going on. Uh, no, <laughs> it's not how to do this. <laughs> oh, same with me. I I, uh, I found I, I much more enjoyed the sort of the the dungeon mastering side of things and the creativity of it. But I'm right there with Willie. I, I started in 1979. I bought the original uh, the, the original box set and quickly sort of graduated to the new uh, the new AD&D. Uh, Gyjax, Gary Gyjax was my introduction to sword and sorcery. Um, you know, it was it was not a field that I had much interest in. I was I was a science fiction guy. Uh, so I started, uh, and it was, of course, the Appendix N, you know, that famous list. You know, if you like playing this game, here's a list of uh, yeah, Paul Anderson novels, and, you know, and, and read The Hobbit. Don't leave, he, he didn't like Lord of the Rings, but he said, read, uh, read The Hobbit. Uh, you know, I was they, introduced to The Hobbit in 1966. When right. I was eight. One of our, read, read to me at school. You were like eight my, years old in 1966. Yeah, I was eight in 66. And uh, my, school, my teacher read us all The Hobbit. And 
six months later, I went out to the library and asked for the Lord of the Rings. So I read Lord of the Rings when I was nine. Wow. <laughs> oh, my God. That was my introduction to fantasy. That's when my fantasy career started. Fantasy reading career started. So I've been at it for a long time now. <laughs> when people talk to me, ask me about modern sword and sorcery, I, mean, I get this a lot, right? Hey, John, you, you edited a sword and sorcery magazine. Where should I go to get modern sword and sorcery? And I keep telling them, you know, the place where the real action is right now is a lot of these gaming universes, you know, bring it back to, to the topic. Um, and I am, I'm enjoying the heck out of, you know, the, the, a lot of this Warhammer stuff. I really am. Uh, the Warhammer 40K, some of the books, you know, now you've written a lot. You're probably the most experienced person on this call in this, uh, you know, in this industry. What's, what are your thoughts on, you know, on, on gaming fiction as sort of a, of a home of the modern home of sword and sorcery? I'd say it depends a lot on which universe you're looking at. Um, yeah. The old world, which is the old uh, Warhammer fantasy setting, extremely yeah. gothic, very street level with uh, narratives that were being told. Um, even at its most benevolent, the magic is creepy and wrong. So mm-hmm. it has a very nice um, callback to, to some of the overall themes of sword and sorcery. The uh, new age of Sigmar has a bit of that, but it's also a lot more high fantasy in, in a lot of the ideas that are on the presentation. You've got divine warriors coming down and lightning strikes and uh, you know, different realms of reality and that kind of thing going on with it. So it's not quite as grounded as Warhammer fantasy had been. And I can only speak for the novels that Howard Andrew Jones wrote for Pathfinder, but um, at least his novels have a very sword and sorcery feel to them. Yes. Uh, he always him, used to him joke, too. He always used to joke that people would complain because uh, his characters get hurt, and they're like, "Why doesn't he just have the cleric heal him?" Yeah. Start introducing clerics and then killing them off <laughs> within the first five chapters, so he could get that out of the way. <laughs> One of the one of the things I'd plan on talking about uh, before I even knew you were on the panel is is uh, I've been able to recommend Bruner, you know, the bounty hunter, which you wrote ten years ago now, right? Uh, and that's set in in the old Warhammer universe. That trilogy, I mean, is is a, a beautiful example of modern sword and sorcery, in my opinion. Well, it's kind of deliberately done in that that sort of a tone. You didn't want to, you know, or these larger than life kind of toppling kingdoms sort of characters. Yeah, he's very much done uh, a more grounded character and a lot of callbacks to one of my major influences, the Italian Western. Right, right. It's very episodic. It's very episodic in that he moves on from, you know, from one adventure to another. There isn't this sort of overwhelming, you know, he has to save, he has to save the world. He's a, a, you know, he's a bounty hunter and and a mercenary and, and, uh, you know, those are, those are all things that speak, uh, speak very clearly to, to, you know, sword and sorcery fans. Well, in a lot of these kind of characters, you, know, you get as dark as you want, as long as whoever they're going against is worse. Is worse. <laughs> is, that the, is that the truth? Turner certainly goes into that, that territory. Wouldn't, wouldn't hesitate to shoot a better swordsman in the back. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're in the game to win, yeah. Is that uh, is Bruner still in print? Because I, I keep recommending it to people, and I know they've been able to find it, but I don't know if they're still buying new copies. The omnibuses. Uh, yeah. In fact, I was in a games workshop uh, just last week, and they had a copy of the omnibus in there. Uh, the individual novels are a bit harder to track down. And bet, yeah. Omnibus has two short stories in there that aren't collected in the, the original three novels. That's uh, that's how I found it. I'm, I'm not sure I've ever even seen the original novels. It was it was the omnibus I, I bought. It. In fact, I bought several copies now because I gave I think I gave away the first two that I had. Well, thank you for the residuals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In all fairness, I mean, I, I uh, for a while I was getting everything that uh, Warhammer printed. Um, I, I was getting review copies of everything, including their uh, their audio stuff, which I deeply appreciated. I wrote a lot of uh, I wrote a lot of reviews for for, uh, for them at Blackgate, and Howard did too. I think I, I remember in back in maybe I don't know Blackgate, maybe Blackgate issue three or four. Howard wrote a review. I mean, I, I did not stumble on you accidentally. It was Howard Andrew Jones who wrote a review of Bruner in maybe issue three or issue four that, that had me dashing out to find a copy that I, I'd probably already mailed off to review. Maybe Howard, maybe I think I'd, I think that's right. I think I probably mailed that copy to Howard. He absolutely loved it. I don't, I don't know if you ever saw his review. Um, and I had oh, to go yeah. scrapping and find my own copy. Yeah. I think he, later on, he did a review for the uh, Fullman books too. Yeah, the, uh, Witch Hunter Therapy. Now you're still, you're still writing 
uh, for Black Library. I mean, you, you did an Age of Sigmar book that came out this year, right? Yes, um, Lady of Sorrows was the most recent one that I had come out. Works with high fantasy, but I think there's enough of a gothic feel to that one that uh, sword and sorcery fans would you know, get get quite a bit get a value out of it. I find the Warhammer 40k stuff, um, which is you know it's basically Warhammer. For those of you who aren't aren't familiar with it, it's it's basically the, the dark gothic Warhammer world transplanted into the you know the far future. Uh, uh, with remarkably little change, you know, you're, they're still fighting orcs. Uh, they're still, uh, you know, engaged in, in, in pitched hand-to-hand combat. It just happens to be in outer space for the, for the large part. I find that that has all the hallmarks of sword and sorcery for me. It's still very gritty. It's still very individualistic. Uh, there are occasionally, you know, a uh, 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 higher, you know, we have to say world-saving story arcs. But at at, a, at the le- at the narrative level, the story is still you know on, on individual heroes and individual and extremely colorful individual villains. Willie, you said a while ago that sword and sorcery is you know and Gary you said this sword and sorcery is basically historical fiction with monsters, right? Well, yeah. uh, in, in Warhammer 40k, the monsters are are far are, are far more colorful, and, and that's that's what appeals to me. So I do uh, maybe again this this may be blasphemy, but when people ask me for good sword and sorcery, I point them towards the Warhammer 40k. <laughs> I've got uh, one of my writer buddies, Steve Savile, writes for Warhammer. Uh, he's now writing games manuals for some of the big companies. So there'll be games coming out that he's done. And his background is as a horror writer, but with some fantasy. But he's now becoming a, a fantasy writer who's moving into games. And he's uh, he's got some big games coming out in the next couple of years. And, and they'll definitely be sort of sorcery because that's Steve's thing. Who's worth paying attention to in gaming fiction today? I mean, we've probably all read, or at least we're aware of, you know, the incredible expo- explosion of, you know, Dragonlance novels and Greyhawk novels and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in the 80s and 90s, which, which put, which frankly, made, which made Dungeons and Dragons mainstream, in my opinion. Uh, everybody followed suit. You know, Warhammer novels. Uh, uh, God, there was, there's Magic the Gathering novel. Is any of it worth paying attention to? I read some of Josh Reynolds's Warhammer books. So, but I, I know Josh is a friend, and that's why I, that's why I read his books basically. But, uh, so I enjoyed them. I've joined joined a couple of Steve's Warhammer books as well, but I haven't been I haven't been keeping up with the rest. I read a lot of the uh, Warhammer stuff, but I unfortunately just because of time, I, I don't yeah. get into too many of the other universes. So I couldn't really tell you, you know, a good Dungeons and Dragons author, or, you know, somebody that's uh, yeah. really got their pulse on, say, Battlestar Galactica or something. Yeah. But, you uh, mentioned uh, you mentioned Pathfinder, and I don't I don't know how many people on the panel. So uh, Pathfinder published God a very lengthy, quite a library. And Howard Andrew, these are these are a couple of Howard Andrew Jones's books. They are a ton of fun. They're very sword and sorcery. They're very individual. The other the other person I think I'd like to to, to signal out. Um, I thought I thought that Tim Pratt, Tim Pratt wrote a couple of uh, of Pathfinder novels. And I found them very sort of Faffer and the Grey Mouser like uh, Liar's Island and uh, Liar's Bargain. They are uh, this is this is old school sword and sorcery. I mean, yes, it, it it is set in a fantasy in a fantasy world. Um, I deeply enjoyed the stuff you know the stuff that Howard was doing. Um, he had he had a you know he had a lizard man made character. If if you're if you were you know if if when you were at the age of sixteen, if the height of cool was fighting alongside a lizard man, this book will take you back to that that book, <laughs> you know. Through the Gate in the Sea. It's just, I find it extraordinarily imaginative stuff. It still gets my heart going. You know, I'm 56 and I still enjoy reading it. Um, there isn't a lot, of course, that's going to get me as excited as I was when I was 14 years old discovering this. But when I do, you know, I, I, I like, I, I do like to trumpet it. I have to admit, I'm not really much up on uh, game related stuff. Uh, when my sons used to live with me, I, of course, my older son had a Terranid model army and I got to see Skyrim and all the other, you know, video games that they played. That Tyranid Army is probably worth a million dollars right now. I started out playing, uh, I don't know if anybody remembers Bard, the early uh, adventure games on computers. On just, Bard's just a, Tale? But like Colossal Cave, but an upgrade. Uh, and uh, you, you went into a village, you bought some gear and you explored the village. And it was a very basic... Oh. Adventure Bard, game, Bard's Tale. A Bard's Tale, that's the one. Yes, Bard's Tale. Oh, yes, yeah. and yeah. that's that. I played that. Played that for months, and that was that was my introduction to PC gaming, basically. But that was that was uh, one of the first video games I ever beat. Was first Bard's Tale. You beat yeah, Bard's Tale. Oh my god! 
Only the first one. Never got anywhere with Bird Steel Two. The first no, I see me actually. I I beat the first one, but never got never got to the second the second one. But that would be what 1985, 86. I believe that's right. Interplay, yeah, 19, right. yeah, nineteen eighty four. Uh, released in eighty five. They did Bard's Tale two and Bard's Tale three, and of course, there's been there's been uh, renovations too. Yeah, that was set in the town of Sky Skybray, which I oh, thought sorry. which yeah. I thought for years was imaginary, but it, it's a real town, right? Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a, it's a village, a Neolithic village in Scotland. I've visited it, been there. It's just like the game, right? Uh, no, it's a <laughs> it was a village which was a. Uh, Buried in a sandstorm back 3,000 years ago. Uh, and it was uncovered in Victorian times and they've, they've dug it all out. So it's an old Neolithic village. So it's on the coast on, on Orkney. You can go and wander around it now. It's like it was 3,000 years ago. Oh, well, worth oh. a visit if you're living in Scotland. <laughs> I know at one time that was the oldest settlement that they had unearthed in the British Isles. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It still holds true, but at one time... I think it, it, yeah, I think it still is the oldest one, yeah. Well worth a visit because it's an amazing place. I know we're and, coming up to the end of the hour. I don't. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to wrap up here without without giving a shout out to a couple of uh, a couple other publications that I think are doing really cool work, sort of building on you know what we've been talking about here. You know the the, the history of, of sword and sorcery. Some of them are publishing. You know, I know, I know some of them are publishing Willie's work. Some of them are publishing Clint's work. Um, so you know, I've I've already talked about. Tales of Magician Skull, which is linked to Goodman Games. At the back of this, they've got, you know, for gamers, they've got all the, all the games statted out. So, Clint, you, you've got a story in this issue. And I think, you know, the Goodman's got, you know, got your character stats at the end, which I think is cool. Um, you know, I, I already mentioned uh, Occult Detective. I want to talk, you know, there has been a new issue of, of the granddaddy of them all, Weird Tales. You know, yeah. This came out in, 2000, in, uh, in late 2019. So everybody, everybody says Weird Tales is dead. It just seems to be the magazine that never dies. I just got this in the mail a week ago. You know, this is a new magazine of weird horror. This is being run out of Canada by a guy named Mike Kelly. Yeah, there's, there's some great stuff in there. Oh, have you read it? Uh, no, I know a lot of the writers. I know I'm waiting for a copy to arrive. I just got it. I just, I'm really excited by this. I'm really excited. It's, uh, I, I even bought a subscription. It, they say it's going to come out quarterly. You know, it, it looks and feels like a classic sort old uh, weird horse or in sorcery magazine. So I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty pumped up by that. And of course, uh, if you're, you know, uh, Skelos is the other one. This is yeah. uh, Mark Finn, uh, Jeffrey Shanks, uh, a few other guys uh, that have done a really great job. Uh, and the fourth issue just came out um, and, you know, uh, talking about, you know, all, all the, uh, uh, Chris Gruber. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. Sorry, Chris. I forgot. I, did, I forgot to mention you. Mark Finn, Chris Gruber, Jeffrey Shanks. These guys have done a marvelous job of recreating it. You know, a modern weird horror sword sorcery magazine. For for the wrap up, I just wanted to, to ask real quick: What is your favorite adaptation? It could be in any form. What is your favorite? What is the one that you hold dearest? I know we talked about supernatural thrillers earlier, but perhaps there's some other. Maybe it's not even a comic book. Maybe it's a movie. Maybe, maybe it's a, maybe a movie uh, and it's Excalibur. Mm, oh, boy. Oh. Uh, that, made a big impact on me. But I said, going back, growing up in Britain, most of my early fantasy stuff was Arthurian legends. And uh, I'm, I've come up through Arthur and Robin Hood as being the, the big introductions. And uh, Excalibur, when I first saw it in the big screen and when it first came out, just blew me away. I loved it. And it's remained a favourite ever since. It's, it's in equal parts thrilling and silly. And uh, I think it's brilliant. With Helen Mirren as uh, Morgana. Yep, Helen Mirren in a leather, in a leather and metal bikini. <laughs> <laughs> well worth watching. <laughs> well, it wasn't until the last time I watched it uh, earlier this year that I realised uh, Gabriel Byrne was playing Uther. All these mm-hmm. years of watching that, I never caught on. I didn't catch Patrick Stewart in there till much, yeah. much earlier. Liam yeah. Neeson's in it. Liam Neeson's in oh, it yeah. as well. It's incredible. Yeah. It pre-crawl, Liam Neeson. Yeah. <laughs> Clint, what about you? What's your favorite adaptation? Uh, I think for fantasy, it's probably a wonky one to pick, but uh, Rankin-Bass Hobbit. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. God, yes. That gets all the chat. I love that movie. Piece with the proper soundtrack is, is a crime because all of the home video releases, they use the LP soundtrack, not the actual soundtrack from when it was broadcast. So there's all kinds of sound effects thrown on them. That, that soundtrack is a masterpiece. Oh my God, and why am I blanking on his name? Yarborough? Yes, Glenn Yarborough. 
Yes, Glenn Yarbrough. Yeah, it is. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous piece of music. Um, yeah, which and they picked up some of the motifs from it. Uh, you know, uh, uh, down, down in Goblin Town. That sound. That sound. And uh, uh, there was some a lot of spoken poetry on there that he t- he set to music. It, it is a gorgeous. Well, I'd love to have a copy. A, of it a uh, song he wrote for that. You can uh, find it on YouTube called uh, "The Old Fat Spider." Yes. Which- wasn't included in the film and it's a great little song great tune it's uh uh one of my favorite fantasy albums is is that soundtrack and uh i i watched the rankin bass hobbit on tv when i was probably 17 years old and it it, it blew me away uh it was it was gorgeously you know that the voice acting and it was was awesome I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that it is, it is in my mind a, a wonderful work of art and it's you know, I'm not even sure you can buy it on DVD anymore because they they wanted they didn't want any confusion with the new version of The Hobbit. I understand, I understand that that business requirement, right? They don't want somebody going online on Amazon and, and saying, you know, I want to buy The Hobbit movie and then getting the wrong one, uh, you know, because Amazon is going to take the blame for that. So I, for a while, it was, just was impossible to get a copy of it. And I think that's a shame. I haven't seen that, that uh, issue. I've always seen it available. But again, oh, when they released it, problem was they used the LP soundtrack so there's all kinds of sound effects that are missing. Real uh, good example is when Bobo's killing the spiders. Every time he would hit a spider there was this vortex noise. Not on the DVDs. Oh my god I had no idea. So there's all kinds of little sound effects that are gone which if you never knew they were there you might be fine but if you know they're there There. you can't unhear it. I think my favorite my favorite adaptation from a sword and sorcerer's perspective uh, they're all video games. I think that it was, you know, it, it was the, the, you know, in the same way that Marvel Conan brought a lot of uh, a whole new young readership into Robert E. Howard. I think it's the modern video games that are bringing uh, young people to fantasy today, particularly sword and sorcery. Um, so there have been some very dark, uh, uh, really very dark, very entertaining video games that I, uh, I don't have time to play much anymore, but uh, when I do, I find them delightful. They are far more, you know, I played Bard's Tale to death uh, and, and most of its sequels. These games are far more sophisticated and far more memorable. Um, so I kind of envy them. I'm a little bit jealous that people get to play uh, games that have that level of story and that level of care, real, real storytelling, a real genuine sword and sorcery stel- storytelling in, in, in such an interactive way where you, ha- you get to make, you get to make, uh, uh, choices. The only time I ever experienced something like that was playing old solitaire games, like you know, Barbarian Prince or something. You know, playing <laughs> playing a, a sword and sorcery story in my basement with some, with some dice. For me, I, I think the most powerful adaptations, the ones with the most with the greatest reach, and the ones that are bringing in the most readers to new readers to sword and sorcery, are modern video games. I think I for myself, I wanted to just throw one in there that maybe nobody thought about: uh, Hawkwind, Warrior on the Edge and? of Time. Yeah, Do you remember that? I album? saw that Mike. I was at the concert. Ah, were you? Oh my God! Yeah. They're, still, yeah, they're still touring. So I've seen Hawkwind five or six times back in the seventies. They were one of my favorite bands back then. I saw them in Glasgow in 70, 73, 74, 75, and seventy six. I think some of them four different tours. Wow! Did, did Michael Moorcock uh, perform saw, with them? I saw Moorcock on stage with them. Yeah. Wow. Uh, awesome. Twice he was yeah he turned up. Didn't didn't he do the recitation on uh, when the wizard blew his horn? Yeah, he did. Yeah, I had no idea. I only learned that many years later. Yeah, <laughs> I doubt if I had only known. But anyway. Yeah, I'm I'm of the right age to have seen lots of those uh, fantasy based bands back in the seventies. I saw people like uh, Uriah Heep and Hawkwind and uh, several others who were very much based on using fantasy motifs in the the songwriting. So there's a lot of them around at the time. Even way back then, Judas Priest were into fantasy in their first couple of albums because when I first saw them in concert, they were wearing long capes and the, the high leather, uh, high leather uh, boots and uh, silly wigs before they went really heavy. Willie, what have you got coming up soon? Uh, I've got uh, my Karnaki collection, which we were talking about earlier, uh, Edwardian Ghost Stories. And there's a collection then coming out from Dark Regions Press in the next couple of weeks. Apart from that, there's a, I've got a, a pirate sword and sorcery story coming from a Dark Region anthology. Called, uh, it's a pirates and pirates versus a Cthulhu mythos story. Dark Regions are bringing out an anthology of them. Uh, that's been delayed a bit because of the coronavirus thing, uh, but that will be out next year sometime. 
WilliamMeekle.com. Got some free stuff there, and all my, all my books are listed there. And, of course, Amazon.com is your friend. Yeah, Amazon's everything's on Amazon, yeah. John, what have you got coming up, and, and where can people find you on the web? Well, I'm, I am nowhere near as proficient as uh, Clint or Willis. So I'll, I'll try and keep it short. Uh, you know, my book was The Robots of Gotham. I published a new story in this series um, in, uh, in Lightspeed Magazine. just came out in the October issue. Um, and that, I think I think that was like one of the longest stories ever published in in uh, uh, in Lightspeed. I had to I had to haggle with the editor to get it <laughs> to, not, to not cut it down too much. My website blackgate.com um, has new content coming up every day. We're reviewing these magazines. Uh, you know, we talked about the latest issue of Skelos. We talk about old uh, computer games, video games. We, I, we talked about Barbarian Prince. You know, Howard and I went on at like great length. Um, you know, Howard Andrew Jones and I. Uh, I have about forty different writers. Who have uh, who've written articles uh, for Blackgate uh, and regular columnists? So it's a if if you're a fan of this stuff, come on by. I think you'll like what you see. Clint, what have you got coming up, and where can we find you on the web? Well, ironically, I also have a pirate story uh, that's coming up in Tales from Magician's Skull. If you ever want to see samurai versus shark demons and pirates, that that'll be the story for you. January, my novel for Aconite is coming out, which is Sword of Surtur, is set in the Marvel Legends of Asgard series. Tyr, who's Thor's older brother, going up against the fire giant Surtur. Kind of a good uh, adventure story, you know, going down into Muspelheim and uh, dealing with all the horrible things that infest there. Uh, I also should have a short story coming up in a Black Library anthology called uh, Dire Chasm which I believe is coming out in December. That features, uh, it's a tie-in to their Warhammer Underworld game. So it's four bands of different factions fighting it out in this living mountain. A little bit more high fantasy than standard sword and sorcery. I don't have too much of a web presence. I've got uh, some stories I've put up on Curious Fictions under C.L. Werner. A lot of those stories are free if anybody wanted to go up there and just get a sampling of, of my style or themes, that kind of a deal. Fortunately, my own website has gone kind of fallow and lost contact with my webmaster on that one. Look oh, for, Amazon's always got... Uh, look for C.L. Warner and you can find, find stuff there. And a lot of the Black Library stuff now comes out first through the Games Workshop site. So if you want a hardback edition rather than paperback, that's, that's going to be your go-to. Well, thank you, everyone. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This has been the second in a projected series of roundtables where authors and fans of Sword and Sorcery will discuss topics related to the genre. In our next podcast, G.W. Thomas will be joined by three new authors. Until next time, I'm M.D. Jackson. Rage Machine.